I'm happy to see uh, so many children in the congregation tonight. One thing that we would not want you to do is to stay home on the Lord's Supper evening, leave your children at home or whatever, because this is a teaching ordinance of the church, and there's nothing that you could do better than to bring your children uh, to hear the message and then also to observe the supper as it's taken. At some point, uh, we pray that these younger children will receive Christ as the Savior, and then they'll have an understanding that when they are permitted to come to the supper, that they'll uh, have some understanding of what we do and why we do this. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, John chapter 1, and we are blessed this evening to come back to the Lord's table for our quarterly observance of the Lord's Supper. And we've set aside these four Sunday evenings during the year to observe the Supper which is a solemn and beautiful picture of the death of Christ. I often start these Lord's Supper sermons by saying that there are two ordinances that are given to the church, and both of them are memorials. The first one that's given to us is baptism, and that is a picture of our belief in Christ, that he died, that he was buried, and then he arose from the grave. And we also see in baptism that a Christian has died to his old way of life and that he's risen to walk in the new life in Christ. Baptism is an act of obedience which is required of all believers. Uh, At your initial reception of Christ as your Savior, this is a command that Christ has given and he expects us to obey it. It's not optional for Christians. And that is the way, uh, baptism is the way that we actually identify with Christ. And baptism is a one-time act. If it's rightly performed, it's a one-time act, and a Christian will only go through it one time in his Christian life. And when I say one-time act, that might raise a question in some people's minds, because uh, baptism does have to be properly administered. It's administered under the authority of the New Testament church, and it must be administered by those who are of like faith and order to New Testament churches, which would mean that anyone who has been immersed or sprinkled, and uh, that comes from a church that is of not like faith and order to a New Testament church, then that baptism is invalid. And I might back up just a little bit there as to say if you are sprinkled, that uh, if you've been or refused or something like that in a baptism, that's not a true baptism. It's not according to Scripture, and so it's not recognized by the Lord. So rightly performed, baptism is a one-time act of a repentant believer who identifies himself with Christ. But the Lord's Supper is not a one-time act. In fact, a Christian should experience this many times throughout his Christian life. And the Scriptures have commanded that we observe this uh, this, uh, uh, supper and that we do it often. And we are to do it until the Lord comes again. And when the Lord comes, he's going to take us home to heaven. And so there won't be a church on earth. And so we won't observe the supper any longer. But I want you to understand, though, that as we take the supper tonight, that baptism, or like baptism, the... Lord's Supper is also administered under the authority of the church. It is a church ordinance, and as such, uh, only those who have been joined to the Lord's church through baptism and are in fellowship with the church can actually participate. I know that sometimes for people, hard for people to see, but baptism is our identification with Christ, and the Lord's Supper being a church ordinance necessitates also that we would have identification with Christ or identification with his body. 
In the supper, we uh, take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and we have a representation of his blood. And according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it is the blood of Christ that washes away our sin. And in Ephesians chapter 5, the scripture says that Christ gave himself for the church. And so that connection between the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin and then Christ also giving his life for the church ought to make this very apparent. Uh, Ephesians says that we are also washed by the word, that we might be presented to Christ as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. And so that would help us to understand, I think, that those who would not unite with the Lord's body, in fact, would dishonor his body and his blood by partaking. And so we look at the Lord's Supper itself as the ultimate expression of our dedication to Christ. This is an act of obedience, as baptism is, and so we are commanded to observe the supper on a regular basis, which is an expression of our love to him. Now, our text tonight is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse number 29, and this is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. It's a very important one. Uh, John the Baptist was uh, baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he was preaching a message of repentance and a message of, of for, a forgiveness of sins. Uh, John was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one who would announce the ministry of Christ, and then he would also be the one who would uh, baptize Jesus. So he announced Christ's ministry by preaching, by baptizing, and then finally, of course, as I said, baptizing the Lord himself. Now, our scripture verse is John one twenty nine. And this is not the same time as when Jesus was baptized. This was actually a later time. Most likely this incident here occurs after the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. And John looked up and he saw Christ coming to him. And with excitement he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now I want you to look in the scriptures beginning. We're going to start reading in verse number 19 of John chapter 1. It says, and this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, verse 29, I said, is our text tonight. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, this is actually part two of a message that I preached at the last observance of, our, of the supper. And I know that's a long time between two parts of a sermon, and uh, I seriously doubt that you remember a whole lot of what I said back then. 
And so I don't want to preach that whole, whole part of the sermon over again, but I just want to give you an idea where I was going in that message. Uh, we were looking back into the Old Testament, and we were looking for examples of the Lamb of Sacrifice. When John declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he meant that Jesus was the one that God had ordained to be the antitype of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, animals were killed in the Old Testament as propitiatory offerings. They were given in order to appease the wrath of God. They were given for atonement. But according to the New Testament, there was none of those sacrifices that could actually take away sin. And so year after year, the same sacrifices had to be brought. They kept doing this. Animals were killed because there was not one animal that could ever, or a group of animals that could ever take away the sins of people forever. But there was coming one into the world who could. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so when John said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, what he meant was, here is that one-time offering. Here is the last offering that God will make. Here is the one that forever will take away sin. He gives himself for sin, and he will satisfy the wrath of God forever. And so the people would make that connection. Uh, they had read many, many times throughout the Old Testament about sacrifices, and they could relate to those. And so they understood what John meant when he said that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Now, I mentioned in the last message just three instances that we find in the Old Testament of, sa of lambs for sacrifice. And I put those under the heading of the pictures presented by the Lamb. Now, I want to give you those just briefly tonight. Uh, the first one was the lamb that covered shame. And that's the offering that we find in Genesis chapter 1 when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And there we have the first sacrifice that was ever made in Scripture. And interestingly, it was God himself who made that sacrifice. God killed animals in order to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Now, that was a symbol that would stand forever, that blood has to be shed in order to cover sin. And you might make a note of this, maybe somewhere on your listening sheet, that it was God who made the first sacrifice that was ever made. That was done in the Garden of Eden, the first sacrifice that was ever needed. And it was also God who made the last sacrifice that was ever needed. And that's when he gave his own son on the cross as an offering for sin. So it was God who killed those animals, and that was the first sacrifice. It's God who gave his own son. And when God did that, he offered up the last sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice that would take away sin forever. Now, the next picture that we looked at was the lamb that was an acceptable offering. And that was in the story of Genesis chapter 4. It's when Abel brought the firstlings of his flock... And the contrast in that scripture was the offering that his brother Cain made. Cain was disobedient because he didn't bring what God required. And Cain showed his rebellious nature by refusing to worship God in God's way. I know sometimes we have a wrong picture in our minds of Cain. Uh, we think, well, Cain did the best that he could. 
I mean, it's really not fair what was done to Cain because he, he did the best that he could. He brought the best fruits that he had, and, and that's all that he had to bring and bring. And so Cain really didn't understand what was required of him. No, Cain did understand. The story of how God slew those animals in the garden was not a secret to Cain. Adam was Cain's teacher. And Adam, understanding very clearly what his personal sin was and what God had to do to take care of that sin, God killing those animals in order to cover him and Eve for their sins, that was impressed indelibly upon Adam's mind. And you can be sure that Adam taught both Abel and Cain what sacrifices they were to bring. But instead, Cain refused to do that. And so, out of his rebellious obstinacy and his refusal to honor God and do what God said to be obedient, Cain brought the wrong sacrifice. So, the picture that God wanted us to see and wanted Cain to see that there's only one way that sins could ever be washed away, and it takes blood. Nothing else will do. God is not going to accept a wrong sacrifice. And, of course, the lesson for, that, for us in that would be that Christ's blood is the only way that we can be cleansed of our sins. And so there is no one who can be saved. No one in the entire world can be saved except through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then thirdly, we looked at the lamb that replaced the son. And that's that great story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And Genesis 22 is just a marvelous chapter, and and really there are a series of sermons that can be preached from that. But we looked at that story very briefly, and this was when Abraham was ready to slit Isaac's throat, and he was ready to make him a sacrifice. And then God stepped in, God stopped him, and God provided a ram that was caught in a thicket instead. And the picture that we see there is that Christ took the sinner's place. And so instead of our blood being shed, and instead of us going to the cross, which is what should have happened, God gave his own son to take our place. So Christ was that lamb that was caught in the thicket, and he was taken to the cross and made a sacrifice for sin. And so once again, we see the lamb of God uh, as the one who takes away sin in these Old Testament pictures. Well, there's one more picture that I, that I do want to look about and look at, and, and there's many that we could talk about. Um, th- but this is the one that really most closely connects to what we are about to do tonight. And this is the lamb that protects from judgment. This is the story of the Passover lamb that we find in Exodus chapter 12. Now, I want you to turn there, if you would, and I'll be brief this evening because I do have another part of the message that I want to speak on tonight. And this is the story of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. And it was in Egypt that God was preparing Israel to become a nation. Uh, Israel prospered there and they multiplied in Egypt. That took place while Joseph was alive. But when Joseph died, there was a new Egyptian dynasty that came to the throne. And there was a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And so he became alarmed at the prolific reproduction of the Hebrews in his country. And so he made slaves of them, and he treated them cruelly. Uh, God intended that Israel should be in Egypt for only a short time, and his purpose in putting them there was so they could multiply, and that they would come together, and they would become one nation. And then it was God's intention that he would lead Israel out of Egypt, and he would take them to a land that had been promised as an inheritance to Abraham and his descendants. Well, naturally, Pharaoh opposed that plan, 
Pharaoh had a ready-made workforce. He had a free workforce that was in Egypt. And so he was bent on keeping them there despite the commandment that God had given them. Uh, God, uh, instead of God being in control, Pharaoh wanted to be in control. And so God raised up a deliverer. He called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, but Pharaoh refused. And so God sent a succession of nine plagues upon Egypt. Plagues like turning water into blood, plagues of darkness, plagues of lice and of frogs and of, of flies. Just nine successive plagues that brought God brought upon them. And Pharaoh would not let the people go. And so finally, God issued one last directive. He was fed up with Pharaoh's refusal. And actually, when you understand Scripture correctly, you'll see that God was also behind Pharaoh's refusal because God intended to show his power and to show that he has control over his people. So that final plague would bring death to Egypt. And so God sent Moses to warn him warned Pharaoh that if he did not let the people go, that God was going to kill all of the firstborn in the land. All would die. And that meant even those in the houses of Israel, unless they prepared a lamb for sacrifice. And so God gave Moses very specific instructions. He said every house has to have a lamb for sacrifice. Every house must have the blood of that lamb smeared on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses. Now, here's what we read in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now, notice there what the end of verse 12 says. God says, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And God's judgment is death. And in this example, we see the picture that the only way that we can escape God's judgment of death is through the blood of the Lamb. Now, what God has done, God has passed sentence upon the world because of sin, Our sins have separated us from him. Our sins have offended his holiness. Our sins have actually ruined God's righteous intention for this world. And so God is not happy about that. God's not going to tolerate sin. Sin brought sickness into the world. It brought thin and uh, thorns and thistles. It brought troubles and anxieties and depression and hatred and lying and murders and stealing. Sin brought all of that. And then finally, sin brought death. Sin brought physical death. And because of sin, then man physically dies. But even worse than that, it's because of sin that man is spiritually dead. But God is perfectly righteous and holy, and he demands that sin has to be punished. But just as God had a plan to deliver Israel from the death angel, so God also has a plan to deliver us from the terrible bondage of sin that we're in. And what happened in Israel on that Passover night can actually happen in the heart of every single Christian, every single person that received Christ as Savior. So there is a death angel that will pass over, and when he passes over, he either will see that you have believed in Christ, or he will see that you have not believed. And he will see that you have the blood of Christ that has been applied to your heart, or he will see that the blood of Christ has not been applied. See, God has already provided a lamb of sacrifice. He's provided one that is a covering for sin. And very simply, the Bible tells us that the way that Christ's blood becomes effectual to us 
The way that his blood actually covers our sin is through faith. We must have faith in the blood of Christ. And we have to have faith that that final sacrifice that he made is what covers our sin. And that's what makes the blood effectual for our redemption. Now, I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful that God has not told me that I have to kill an animal. I think it would be a very difficult thing for me to do. He doesn't say you have to go and kill an animal and put put it on an altar. I don't have to do that because God has already made the sacrifice. I'm happy that I live in a time when redemption has been made for me. God made his sacrifice, and that's the one that will take away my sin. And so the supper that we take tonight tells us that Christ's blood has been shed. His blood has been offered to God. And we look back on that judgment that God placed upon him when he actually became sin for us, and he took the wrath of God on the cross that should have been ours. And so that's what John meant when he looked up and he saw Christ coming, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so those are pictures of what the blood would do. And we memorialize that in the supper. That's why we take it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that Christ, our Passover, is is sacrificed for us. Now, I want to move on then to the second part of the message. And this is the powerful purpose of the blood. Hebrews says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. So we have all these examples of sacrificial animals that are given in the Old Testament, but not one of them is able to do what the blood of Christ can do. These were types. Just as John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ, the sacrificial animals were also forerunners as well. And John pointed to Jesus and called him the Lamb of God. And each of those sacrifices that are made in the Old Testament pointed to Christ as the true Lamb of God. In Israel, there was a literal river of blood that flowed from all those sacrifices that were made. You read in the Old Testament about how Solomon dedicated the temple, and there were thousands upon thousands of animals that were sacrificed. In the New Testament, we see that Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, and when they came, each of them brought a lamb, each of them brought their offering of sacrifice. And so that river of blood flowed out of Jerusalem in these animal sacrifices. But the blood of a single animal or the blood of all those animals collectively could not do what the blood of Christ could do. And so to close out the message tonight, I want to show you three powerful activities of the blood. First of all, the blood of Christ has cleansing power. Now, 1 John 1 verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, we've already established the power of Christ's blood in that initial offering, the one that Christ makes in order to satisfy God for the guilt of sin, and that's the aspect of Christ's blood that we speak about when we talk of justification. We are justified by faith in the blood, so that at the moment that we trust in Christ, the slate of sins that was against us, all of that is wiped clean, and we're no longer guilty before God. So God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is appeased. So that means that we are no longer guilty sinners. Now, that's what we talk about the blood concerning justification. But this scripture, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, does not have a view towards justification. Everything that it says here would be true of justification. But really, this is a view towards sanctification. 
And the literal rendering of this scripture would be, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from sin. And so here, John is speaking about fellowship with Christ. There's that one-time act of cleansing, which is the justification of a believer, but there's also the ongoing cleansing that we receive. You see, every day we get into sin, and if Christ's blood did not keep on cleansing us from sin, then we would become guilty before God again. But God has added this perpetual activity of the blood, and that is that it keeps on cleansing. The blood has cleansing power that lasts and lasts and lasts. It keeps on cleansing us from sin. Now, we notice that the extent of this cleansing, according to John, is to all sin. But that's not the teaching of most churches. Most churches do not believe that the blood of Christ actually cleanses us from all sin. For instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholics will give you acts of penance to do in order to help to take care of your sins. They, they think that you're purged by those acts of penance. And if you die, and there are sins that have not been repented of, and sins that um, you haven't been given penance to do, then you must suffer in purgatory in order to be cleansed from those sins. That is not the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ says that his blood cleanses us from all sin. And so there isn't one sin that's covered, not one that's left out. And so when we come to the Lord's table tonight, we don't come to observe a mass. We don't come here to take Christ's blood and to reapply it in a physical sense in a continual manner. There's no physical act that could ever do this. So we don't consecrate wafers and we don't consecrate and hold up the cup here and turn it into the blood of Christ. There is perpetual cleansing in the blood. That's the power of the blood. And so at the point of belief, we are justified and then we're given the sanctifying power of the blood. And nothing that we could ever do could ever wash away one sin any more than the blood of an animal could wash away sin. Now, secondly, the blood of Christ has communing power. Paul speaks of communing in, uh, communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, and this is actually why that we call the Lord's Supper communion. It comes from this verse. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the Lord's Supper is called communion because... It's the blood of Christ that makes it possible for us to approach God. We, we partake together of the blood, and that's, uh, or, the, or, the, or the bread, rather, and that shows that we have fellowship with his body. And then we take the cup, the fruit of the vine, and that represents the fellowship that we have with God through the offering of the blood, and that it's the work of that blood that actually brings us close to God. In Ephesians, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who are sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, the Bible teaches that before we receive Christ, we were separated from God because of sin. But when the Holy Spirit comes and he applies that blood to our hearts, that's when we're brought near to God. Now, there may be some of you tonight that you have to be honest with yourselves and you would have to say you have no intimacy with God. You have no connection with him. It seems like God is on the backside of the universe somewhere as far as you're concerned. So you're experiencing separation from him, and the only way that you could ever be brought near to him is through the blood of Jesus. Sin is always a barrier between you and God. Now, I wanted you to picture in your mind for just a moment the Holy of Holies. And I know that you're familiar with this. 
uh, Yuten Berean Baptist Church, you hear me refer to this often, the Holy of Holies. That's that compartment in the temple in the tabernacle that was separated from the rest of the structure by a veil that hung. Uh, from the top to the ceiling down to the floor, there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. And no one could go behind that veil. Now, this veil was woven so tightly with thread that it said a team of horses pulling in opposite directions could not pull that veil in two. And it was that veil that separated the people from God, and only one day of the year could anyone ever go behind that veil. And that's when the high priest took the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and he went behind that curtain, he pushed it aside, and there he took the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it upon the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. It's the only time that this could ever happen. And the presence of God was behind that veil. God appeared there in a bright, glowing, shining light called the Shekinah glory. And so it was that veil that separated the people from God. But you know what happened on the day that Christ was crucified? When Jesus died, that veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, torn completely in two. There was no man that could have done that. That was the hand of God that reached down and tore that veil in two. And what that said was that the blood of Christ has made it possible for us to approach God. We can come into the presence of God because of that blood that's been shed on Calvary. So Christ's blood provides the way of access. And so it's the power of God that tore the curtain in two. God removed the barrier. And when the blood of Jesus is applied to your heart, the barrier of your heart between you and God comes down. And that's when you can commune with him. That's when you have your intimacy with God. Now, you see then that we have this aspect of the communion in which we all can come together. And as the people of God, we meet here, we worship, and we have communion with each other. But that communion is not central. The communion that we have with each other is not the central picture that we have when we take the Lord's Supper. Instead, that central picture is Christ himself and God himself, that we are actually can commune with God on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Now, thirdly and lastly, the blood of Christ has conquering power. Now, I want you to think about what the blood of Christ does. It conquers sin in our lives. There's not one sin that we had the power to put away, and we've established that by looking at the shame that led to us uh, as Adam having to be covered by God. We've seen this in the acceptable offering that we cannot bring anything by the works of our hands. We see it in the protection from judgment. Our sins have condemned us, and there's a death angel that will pass over us, and unless that sin has been conquered in our life, we will die and we will go to hell. But the blood of Jesus Christ conquers that problem of sin. Christ's blood conquers the effects of sin. Death is one of those effects. The blood conquers death because when Christ died on the cross and then he went into the tomb, three days later he arose, and that blood applied to our hearts means that we also will arise from the grave. We will have eternal life. The body will come out. But I want to drop back just a little bit. I want to think about that daily cleansing that we receive through the blood because the blood actually gives power in our lives to overcome Satan. Now, we know that when we die, we will arise, we will conquer death in that way, but you don't have to wait until you die to be a victorious Christian. You can actually live that way. Now, let's go over to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, for just a moment. And uh, this is the chapter that tells about the time when Satan will be cast out of heaven. 
Now, today, Satan is free to roam this universe, and he even has access to heaven. And the Bible says that he appears there to accuse us before God. And we have the blood of the Lamb that covers us. And so every time that Satan makes an accusation against us, we have the blood of Jesus the righteous that avails for us. He is our advocate, and so he combats those accusations that Satan makes against us. But I want you to notice here how that Satan is conquered. And so in Revelation 12, verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. And so there we see the key of victory, the key to victory over Satan. It is the blood of of the Lamb. And you have that blood because you have been bathed in it. You've been washed in the blood of Christ. You can draw strength from that. And every temptation that you have, you have the blood of the Lamb that helps you in those temptations. So there never is an excuse for failure. A Christian does not have an excuse to fail in his life. We can never raise our hands and say, well, God, we tried. We tried to serve you, but... Someone once said, you've got to get your big butt out of there because there are no excuses. Every sin has an answer, and the answer is the blood of the Lamb. For every failure, there is an answer, and it is the blood of the Lamb. For every tattling gossip, for every slip-up on Facebook, there's an answer. For anger, for malice, for laziness, for ineptitude, you have the answer for all of that. And that answer is the blood of the Lamb. You have no excuses because we have the power of Christ abiding in us. And so as we take the supper tonight, that blood should be on your mind. I mean, you're going to eat this bread in a moment, and you'll be reminded of the suffering that Christ had in his body. And you'll eat that bread, and you'll remember that Christ is the bread of life. He's the one that nourishes you. He's the one that gives you strength to live a Christian life day by day. As Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And when you drink that cup, you're going to remember that it cleanses you. You'll remember that this is what causes you, enables you to have communion with God. It conquers sin, death, and hell. And so Christ said concerning his blood, he said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so we come to the time of the supper. It's time for us to look at this beautiful picture that Christ has given us. And so I'd like now for our deacons to come and prepare for the administration of the supper. And then I'd like all of you, if you would, if you would stand with me. Uh, Stand right now, and, and we're going to sing a song in just a moment. But before we do that, while everyone is getting into their places, I want to read the scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here we have just a wonderful section that Paul gave on the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse number 26, Paul says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily 
shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, I'm convinced that there is no better way that we can prepare our hearts to take the supper than for us to bow our heads and to confess our sins. And so right now, while our minds are in tune with these thoughts of the blood, we do need to confess our sins so that we don't come to the Lord's table and eat of it unworthily. Or if you want to put it this way, we want to come to the Lord's table with holy hands. So we're going to take just a moment to bow our heads and confess our sins to God. Let's pray. Amen.